a lot of people ask me, well, how do I get a better multiple for my practice? It's doctors. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. This episode is sponsored by CareCredit, the popular third-party payment provider. They are also supporters of the Veterinary Financial Summit. Visit carecredit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Kayla Donovan. She is the founder of Transformation Group Business Advisory and a veterinary practice management consultant. Kayla, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to be on here today. So Kayla, as a consultant who has worn a lot of different hats in vet med, what are some of the most common practice management mistakes you see? Yes, that's a great question. So I see a lot of owners who don't necessarily know exactly where the numbers of their business should be in regards to 2% of revenue. So what I mean by that is we break down a profit and loss statement and kind of show, you know, you have your total revenue. And then if we break it down to where is all that revenue coming from and where is it all going? So there's different categories, like there's cost of goods sold, there's your labor costs, there's your rent, you know, there's all these different categories there. So, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I see a lot of owners do is they don't exactly know what percentage of revenues those should be at. So they don't really know what to look for and know, you know, how to manage that. And these are things that can affect your hospital's valuation when you bring it to the market. So it's important to have an understanding of those numbers so you can position your hospital in the best light to get the highest valuation. And I also see a lot of practices whose prices are way too low. This seems to be a common trend I've seen a lot lately. So it's very important to raise your prices every year and make sure that they're in line with how other practices are charging in the area. Costs are going up for everyone. And if you don't consistently raise your prices, at some point, you're going to have to make a huge jump, which is going to affect your clients a little bit more than had you have just steadily increased it all along. So I know a lot of practice owners don't really love to raise their prices because they're worried about how their clients are going to react. But it's super important that you kind of do this all along and you don't just, you know, all of a sudden three years go by and we haven't raised our prices. And then if you bring your practice to market, you know, that's really going to affect your valuation there too. So just something to keep in mind. And then another big mistake I see, and this is actually more towards the sale process, is after an owner signs an LOI, I like to say it, they take their foot off the gas in a way as far as managing the hospital and it actually should be the total opposite. So this is the most important time to manage the hospital and make sure that the business is performing well. A sale is not closed until it's closed. So it's super important that you continue to manage and make sure that the hospital is performing. You know, I oftentimes see people sign the LOI and then they think, okay, well, now I don't have to be present. I don't have to worry about coverage if people are calling out, you know, who cares? My practice is going to be sold. It's not the case, you know, and usually the process from the LOI to close is now taking significantly longer than it has historically. You know, we don't want to give them any time to kind of backtrack and, and mess with the deal. So it's not over until it's over. So for those who may be unfamiliar, can you explain just quickly what LOI is? Yeah, of course. So the LOI is short for the letter of intent. 
So this is basically a summary of the offer that the corporation's going to be offering you. So it's going to have the total enterprise value on there, you know, what they're offering for the practice. It's going to outline the deal structures as well as some employment terms and just some of the different basic legal aspects of the deal. It's a non-binding document. So if you sign that, again, it doesn't mean that everything's said and done and you sold your practice. It's just the start of a long process. But it just gives you kind of a summary. So it's something that usually, you know, hey, we're going to offer you this. Usually that can be negotiated. You know, we want a little bit of a higher price or we want better employment terms or whatever that looks like. You know, those things can kind of be negotiated right off the bat. So you know exactly what you're getting throughout the entire process. All right. Excellent. Thank you. So, you know, you talked a little bit about who is seeking your services, which is people who have some issues with management. But what is a typical person or practice that seeks your services? Yeah, so veterinary practice owners who are looking to partner or sell to a corporation. So there's a lot of brokers out there that will also do private sales. At this time, I only specialize in corporate sales. So in this case, they'll have to be two plus full-time equivalent. So two plus full-time doctors with at or over 1 million in revenue. We serve practice owners who are early in their career, who want to continue to work, but maybe want more resources to grow their practice, hire doctors and achieve some long-term financial stability. And then we also service owners who are nearing the end of their careers and starting to plan their retirement. So as far as just criteria, it's typically those that would be a good target for a corporate purchase. A lot of people think, oh, well, selling your practice, that must mean you want to retire. Not necessarily. So there's a lot of really cool things that can come with a purchase. So even if you're maybe like only three years into owning your practice, but you want to do something a little bit different or the market's really good and you want to take advantage of it, you can really do it whenever you want. And that $1 million is based on EBITDA? That's based on revenue. So Kayla, do you have any stories of either people you've worked with or just out there of folks who have sold their practice after only owning it for a few years? And how did that turn out? Yeah, so I know I've talked to a couple people who have been in that situation, you know, that they're kind of just starting to think about the process and start to think about, you know, what they want to do. I know when I was in my previous role, there was this one hospital that we were working with. He was a a much younger guy in his early 30s, I believe. And he had only owned his practice for, I think, around three years. And he was super early in his career, but he wanted to partner with a corporation. And he was looking for something a little bit different. He was looking for a joint venture structure, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But this is when he maintains a percentage of the ownership and he's only selling a portion of the practice. So in this way, you know, he's getting the support from a corporation, you know, the back office support, he's getting the recruiting support, you know, he's getting the resources that a corporation has to help him grow his practice, while still maintaining some of that ownership, and still being able to come in and do, you know, what he wants to do, which is just practice medicine, and not necessarily worry about the headaches that are always involved with owning a practice. He wanted to dabble in some other career opportunities as well. So that kind of freed him up some time to do those things too. Okay, awesome. Yeah, and that's one of the great things about this profession is there are so many different things you can do with a DVM. Right, there's so many. And so when 
considering a practice valuation, what are some important factors to consider? Yeah, so a few important things to consider. So first and foremost, what are your goals? So as a practice owner, what are your goals for yourself? You know, what are your goals for your practice? What are you looking to get out of the sale? Are you looking for a complete buyout? Are you looking for a joint venture, you know, partial ownership? You know, what do you want out of your deal? Do you want equity? You know, how long do you want to be tied to the business? And what are your goals for your practice as well? You know, maybe there's an expansion that you've always wanted to do, but you never had the resources to do it, or you wanted to implement, you know, an urgent care in your practice somehow. You know, these are all things that corporate partnership can help you get to, but these are all things that you want to consider as you're starting to think about who you want to talk to about purchasing your practice. Timing's also extremely important. So thinking about timing as far as how long you want to work, that's going to be very important throughout this entire process. Now more than ever, there is going to be things in place to keep you with the practice longer than they have historically. And this is so the buyers can protect themselves a little bit more. And I'll kind of go into more of that later. But you know, that's something that you have to think about. Are you going to be ready to retire in five years or maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's longer? But these are all things that you know you need to think about as far as when you need to bring your practice to the market. Because I'll have people who call me and they're like, I want to sell my practice and I want to be retired tomorrow. That's just not going to be the case anymore, unfortunately. And then also probably one of the most important things too is the current market conditions. And I'll talk a little bit about the market later on as well. But there's a lot of things going on in the market, which is very important to consider when you're thinking about the timing of when you should put your practice on the market. And this comes with also time of year and you know location and all of those things. Also, how many full-time doctors you currently have, that's also something to think about. This is going to weigh very, very heavily into your valuation. I think two of the most attractive things for corporations right now is going to be location. So you know, are you in a rural location? Are you in the city? You know, where are you located? As well as how many full-time doctors you have. So the more full-time doctors you have, the better your valuation is going to be. And then also consider how your business is currently performing. So these are all things that you need to think about. And then there's also the real estate aspect of it as well. So you want to consider how you want to handle your real estate. You know, if you own it or if you lease it, you know, do you want to sell it or do you want to keep the real estate to keep the rental income? But obviously that comes with responsibilities as well. So also you got to think about what you want to do in that aspect too. So talking about the current market, what are the multiples that you're seeing for selling your practices and how do they compare to, let's say 2021, because we're just starting 2023? Great question. So this is probably the number one question I always get every time I talk to a potential seller. They call me and they're like, so let's talk about these multiples. So just to kind of reiterate that for anyone that's listening that may not know, like, what the heck is a multiple? So how practices are evaluated. So you'll find what the EBITDA is. So that's the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. And then you'll times that by a multiple. So that multiple, it's kind of similar, I guess, to the housing market is the easiest way to acquaint it. So there's a lot of factors that go into what those multiples are, but it's just a number. And then they'll times that by the EBITDA, whatever multiple that they choose to go with for your hospital. And that's how you'll get your purchase price for your hospital. So that's kind of just a quick explanation of what that is. 
so the market is changing very, very fast, which most people are starting to see that now. So just to give you some perspective, in 2021, multiples were at an all-time high. I'm talking one to two doctor practices were selling anywhere from six to 10 times, depending on the location. And then three to five doctors were going for probably eight to 15 times EBITDA. And then the six plus doctor practices were going for 12 to 20 times anywhere from that, which is crazy from like just a business perspective. And, you know, right before this, you were seeing, I think seven times was very high for like a three doctor practice. It was just totally blew it out of the water. And now we're starting to see a drastic drop in these multiples, and we'll foresee these to continue to come down. So we're seeing that corporate groups will not even look at one doctor practices anymore unless they're in a really, really great area. And the owner is also open to maintaining a percentage of ownership. So that's really tough because I have a lot of, you know, one doctor practices who would like to sell to a corporation. And unfortunately, back in 2021, yes, they were buying these. But now, unfortunately, it's very, very rare. A lot of them won't even consider if they're one doctor. Unless they're open to doing a joint venture, then there could be some potential there. I also see uh, two full-time doctor practices going for probably five to 10 times. And then the six plus going for 10 to 13 times. 13 is a little bit of a stretch. I'd say it's probably continuing to drop to normalize around that 10, maybe 11 times for those bigger hospitals. And I'll talk a little bit about what the reasons are for this decline. So one's being the shift in focus from the corporate groups. So many are no longer buying hospitals, and they're actually focusing more on the hospitals they have and growing and maintaining talent. As everybody knows, it's very hard to find veterinarians nowadays. And I think when the market first started booming, all these private equity groups, so all these corporations, most of them are backed by private equity groups. And I think they saw the veterinary market and they were like, wow, this is a really great business. And especially after COVID, you know, the hospitals were booming. I mean, it was like one of the only businesses that was doing so, so well during COVID because everybody went out and bought pets. So I think they saw that and they're like, wow, and then we can just support them and, you know, get them better costs on their products and they should be really easy to grow. So let's just buy a million of them and then sell them. We recap for this crazy multiple. Well, they didn't realize how hard it was to grow these hospitals without additional veterinarians. And now corporations have an easier time recruiting because they have teams that are completely dedicated to recruiting staff and they're involved in the vet schools and they have these great mentorship programs and they do these sign-on bonuses and all these different things. But there's a shortage of veterinarians. So no matter how good you are, it's still going to be a challenge. So, you know, I think they realized that and that all of a sudden they were like, holy smokes, we can't support the hospitals we have. We have to stop buying and put all of our focus into making sure our people are happy and we have enough staff and we can hire. So that big shift in focus, I think, was the main driver. And then, you know, I think this also led to these groups becoming much, much pickier in the hospitals that they're selecting. You know, they're being very selective of choosing hospitals that will be easier to recruit based on where they're located. What kind of operations and support do they have locally to that hospital? There's a lot of factors. What is the growth potential here? How are the numbers trending? Is there high turnover within that practice? You know, these are all things that they're looking at and they're just becoming much, much pickier on the practices that they're selecting. 
And then the process of them looking at hospitals has become much more thorough and involved. And they're checking under the hood more than they ever have before, just to make sure that they're getting what they paid for, because a lot of them overpaid for hospitals back in 2021. And I think that really affected them. So they're trying to make sure they're not going to do that again. So again, this kind of all comes back to timing too, as you're thinking about what your plan is. Keep in mind that last year, I would see from everyone asked me, what's the timing from, you know, signed letter of intent to close? Typically, that would look like, you know, anywhere from 60 to 90 days. Now, it's very, very rare that you'd see a 60 day. It's usually 90 days or even longer now, just because their diligence process and the way that they're being so thorough and making sure that the hospital is going to be a good fit for them is just taking so much longer. So just another thing to kind of take into account. And then many groups are also building their own practices. You guys have probably heard the term de novos, which is basically just a fancy word for new builds. But a lot of them are building their own practices versus purchasing existing practices. A lot of groups also will not do any more full buyouts. So they're just doing partnerships or joint ventures. The groups themselves are also becoming more consolidated, as I'm sure you've seen. So there just isn't as much competition as there was historically, because they're all buying each other, they're all becoming a part of each other. So as you start to decrease the competition, that's also going to start to drive those multiples down a little bit. And again, as I had mentioned, the shortage of veterinarians, you know, I think that that's really kind of driving all of this just because it's so hard to grow these practices without additional doctors. That's why I think it's so much more, the more doctors you have, the more attractive that's going to be. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, how do I get a better multiple for my practice? It's doctors. That's really the best thing that you can do. And, you know, and I have a lot of people that call me and say, well, you know, this looks good, but I think I want to wait until the market goes back up. I can promise you, and you can ask anybody this, the market is never going to be what it was in 2021. I mean, that was just a total anomaly. It's always going to be good, but it's just not going to be those crazy, crazy unheard of multiples that it was back in 2021. So if it's something you're considering now might still be a really good time because you're still getting the tailwinds of all of that activity. There's still a lot of really good deals out there. So you're thinking about it, you know, I think the sooner the better as far as timing the market probably makes the most sense from what I'm seeing now. All right. Awesome. So there's a lot to unpack with that because if you want your practice to be more successful from a perspective of being able to sell the practice for more, then you just have to have the magic recipe of finding more doctors, which is one of the hardest things to do right now, right? Right. So there's a couple of things that I wanted to get into a little bit more. One of the things we talked about in a previous conversation is that you have a knack for kind of finding things that other people miss when they're valuing a practice. Can you answer that both on the practice owner side, but then also on the side of the corporations who may have been overpaying for some practices? What are some common pieces that you see being left out of the equation? Yeah, of course. So before starting Transformation Group, I actually worked for a corporate consolidator on their business development team. In that position, I looked at hundreds of valuations from all different hospitals. I worked with all types of different brokers, you know, some veterinary specific, some not veterinary specific. And there has been times where they would actually inflate the EBITDA, right? And not necessarily adjust for things correctly. 
So obviously the EBITDA looks really, really good on paper, but if you do a deep dive into it, you're realizing that there might be some adjustments that have been missed. So this can allow for the groups to make an offer that ends up being a little too high. And then when the buyer starts to go through diligence, they realize, oh, wow, okay, well, for example, let's say they have a doctor on there that was being very underpaid. That makes the EBITDA look better. But then we go through diligence, we realize, oh, wow, well, when we acquire this hospital, we're going to have to pay that doctor the fair market value. And that's going to be a hit to our bottom line. So you're going to have to make an adjustment for that. So that's just like an example of something that I've seen several times in the past. So all of a sudden, they're going to be like, you know, wow, okay, well, we offered too much on this. And once they made the correction, they're going to have to go back to the seller after the LOI was signed and do what's called a retrade, which is basically coming back and saying, hey, I know we offered you this much money, but we actually can only offer you this much, which doesn't feel good. It's something we really want to avoid because it's really hard on the sellers. It's hard on the buyers. It's stressful for everybody. You know, sometimes there's things that we can't avoid, right? Like if a doctor leaves during the sales process or something like that, like there's some things that we can't avoid, but we want to try to do everything on paper to make sure that the buyers are getting the clearest picture that they can. So because of this background, I know exactly how a corporation is going to value the practice. And therefore, I can give a very accurate expectation of what they'll see when they take the practice to the market. And this will help them make the best decision if it's time to sell and also less likely to go through a retrade, which, as I mentioned, is really not fun. And then sometimes the opposite happens. So sometimes a smaller EBITDA number is given when the adjustments aren't made for the buyer's synergies and you know cost reduction strategies, buying power, things like that. An example, like let's say somebody's cost of goods is really, really high, and that happens a lot. What we'll do is we'll actually adjust that out to be normalized to what their targets would be, because usually that's something really easy to hit when they acquire the practice, because they usually have buying contracts with all the different vendors. They usually have different ordering systems that just will make you get things for cheaper, and it'll just be more efficient, your way of ordering. So that's going to be a pretty quick fix. So we can adjust that to normal it out, which is going to make your EBITDA higher. But it's not an inflated EBITDA because we lay all those adjustments out and we can explain that to the buyer. Hey, their cost of goods is high, but because we know you guys have contracts and you can easily get it down to this. So that way their EBITDA is going to be a little bit higher and they're going to get a better price for that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example of something that they might not include. And of course, like sometimes that can result in a lower offer. And then many times evaluation or EBITDA is not even provided. They just send over some P&Ls or whatever they have. And this delays the process as the buyer will have to do their complete own initial calculations to see if they would even like to bid on that practice. And then offers are coming in low and high and you kind of have them all over the board because this is just their way of doing business. You know, their whole way of operating is their goals are to buy low and sell high. So they want to buy the practice for, you know, as low as they can get it for and then, you know, grow the practice and eventually do a recapitalization where they sell to new investors and they've grown the practice. So they'll sell it for a higher price. So me as a broker and advisor, and you know what all of us do, we try to get you a better price for your practice. And it just helps by having all that work done ahead of time. And it's all laid out. So there's really not a lot of variation they can do between high and low offers. 
and just helps because they're all working off the same number. So this will give them a realistic idea of what they're going to get for their offer. And then the buyers are all going to be working off that same EBITDA number. So it gives us a little bit more negotiating power to get the best possible offer for our clients. So we're talking a lot about selling. Are there any trends that you're seeing in the practice ownership side? It seems like it's consolidators or corporations buying clinics. Are any of the associates benefiting from that sale? Meaning are they being offered, hey, you could stay and you have some equity in the clinic or whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of groups are offering kind of the joint venture structures where they actually sell a portion of the equity of the practice to one of the associates for a discounted price. So they give that associate, you know, a little bit, it's kind of everybody wins because obviously in a lot of cases, if the associate goes to want to buy the practice, they go to get a loan, they're not going to be approved for a big of a loan as a corporation is going to be able to pay outright for that practice. So it just kind of helps everybody where the seller is getting the best price for their practice. And then the associates also getting to have some ownership in the practice too, if that's what they want. They also sometimes will offer the associates equity in the entire company, which is really nice, the entire parent company. So they have a lot of really great programs to really want to help veterinarians still be owners. A lot of the groups now, as I had mentioned before, who are really only doing the partnerships, a lot of times they'll build a whole new hospital, find a partner doctor who is going to be the doctor opening that hospital and is going to be a pretty high up partner on there. And they'll open the hospital with that doctor. So they're they're essentially helping doctors buy hospitals, which is really nice. But I do have to say, as far as trends go, from what I'm seeing, and then a lot of my colleagues is that there's less veterinarians nowadays who want to be practice owners. And I think a lot of this has to do with work life balance seems to be becoming a higher priority than it ever was historically. And more and more veterinarians like the idea of coming into work, seeing their patients and going home to spend time with their family and having paid time off when they want it. You know, that's not necessarily the case when you're a business owner, especially if you're just starting out and you're one doctor practice. I mean, it's hard, hard work. I mean, you have to be in there every day seeing patients. There's nobody you can't just call out unless you have relief, but relief work is really expensive. So a lot of them want the flexibility, the better benefits, the better hours. And also just not having to worry about the headaches that come with running a practice. You know, there's a lot that's involved with that and running a team and recruiting. You know, those are all very difficult things. These are a few of the many benefits that a corporate buyer can offer. So they're also getting more creative with their deal structures. Again, how I mentioned the maintaining ownership, but then also obtaining the equity, which can really result in some long-term financial stability. And this allows them to still be a part of the practice and grow the practice and also grow with the entire platform. So a lot of times they'll move up and, and, you know, get a higher up job in the platform. You know, maybe they'll be like the medical director or their regional chief medical lead or whatever that looks like. And that kind of leads me into my next point of that a lot of veterinarians want to explore and grow into different careers, like you had mentioned before. So, you know, there's a lot of different careers out there that you can get into that's not necessarily just seeing patients. And a lot of them are thinking about doing something a little bit different. So, you know, maybe they want to work within a corporate group, or maybe they want to go be a speaker for a pharmaceutical company. 
there's all these different avenues and job opportunities for veterinarians where I think a lot of them do feel stuck like, okay, I went to school for this and spent all this money. And all of a sudden you get into it and you're like, I don't really want to do this anymore, but I feel like I have to, but you don't. There's a lot of different opportunities for you out there. So I think, you know, yes, there's still a lot of people who do want to own their practices, but I do think there's a really nice selling point as far as having that ownership, but then also being able to live your life at the same time. Awesome. So you talked about some relatively new options that are out there because it used to be and I've had classmates and others who have stories where they had some interest in buying into a practice. But then the owner ended up selling to corporate and they didn't have any option for any kind of ownership of that practice. And some vets were really disappointed when that happened, certainly. So now I'm sitting back and thinking about how it's hard to hire vets, but also why would a corporation offer these other options of equity or joint venture, things like that? Do you think and have you seen this out there where if a former associate is offered equity or offered a joint venture or offered a leadership position like medical director, like what you were talking about, are they a lot more likely to stick with that practice versus saying, oh, they're selling to corporate, I'm going to go somewhere else? Absolutely. And I think that's why a lot of the corporations have changed their structures and want to offer that because they want to do everything that they can to preserve the culture of the practice, right? Like they're buying a successful practice. It's successful for a reason. And they want to do everything that they can to maintain that staff, maintain those doctors, you know, maintain everybody in the practice. So absolutely, I think more and more are offering that because of course, like if you have ownership, if you have equity, it's that ownership feeling like this is something that's mine now, you know, hard days, things happen, but it's not like you give up because it's kind of like your baby now, right? Like you're more invested in it, you know, and I think there's kind of like a sense of pride there. And I think it gives a lot of veterinarians the opportunity to have that ownership that they might not have had you know, maybe they don't have the money to buy practice. Practices are very expensive. And a lot of them are still paying off student loans. And, you know, the last thing they want to do is get into debt again and make a big purchase like that. So it's a more affordable way to have ownership in a practice. And more and more of the groups are offering some type of, you know, whether it be equity or ownership or whatever that looks like because they do know that it does help get people to be more invested and want to stay on for sure. Yeah. And I always like to say student debt doesn't have to affect your career decisions. If you want to be a practice owner, you still have that option, even if you have a lot of student debt. The other side of that is that a lot of vets don't feel like they have those Mm -hmm. options because of the weight of the debt. So certainly that comes into play in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit earlier about exit strategies, and you talked about that you don't have to wait until retirement to sell your practice. And so when do you think is the best time to start planning an exit strategy, whether that's at retirement or whether that's just starting to consider exiting a practice? Yeah, that's another great question that I get asked a lot. So Really, the best time is the right time for you and no one else. 
And I say that because I feel like a lot of practice owners will come to me and be like, I've been thinking about this for a while, but I've put it off because I'm afraid to tell my staff and I'm afraid of that they're going to feel abandoned or they're going to be disappointed in me or I'm going to feel like I'm giving up. You should always sit down in the beginning of the year and just think about your your long-term and short-term goals just as a business owner. You know, what does that look like for you? And I always say the sooner the better. It's never too soon to just at least start thinking about what your options might be and what your practice is valued at and just get like an idea of where your numbers are. And like maybe if it's not for another five years that you don't even want to entertain a sale. At least it can kind of get you started to thinking, okay, well, yeah, my cost of goods are really high. And what can I do to start being better with that? Or, you know, my labor is really high. What can I do to kind of offset that, you know, different things in that aspect. And then it's also important to, and I kind of alluded to this before, but most corporate buyers are going to require you to stay on anywhere from three to five years, depending on how many full-time doctors you have. So again, very important because like I said, I get a lot of calls where I just, you know, I want to sell my practice and be done tomorrow. And it's just not going to be the case. I have some owners that are, you know, I call them, you know, passive owners where they're not practicing anymore. So in that case, it's a little bit different, but you have less doctors, the longer you're going to be required to stay. So if you have two doctors and, you know, God forbid something happens to you and then your associate leaves, you know, then they paid, you know, millions for a practice that now isn't making any money and they have to figure out how they're going to staff it. So it's not coming from a mean place where they want to, you know, hold you captive and tie you to the practice. It's really just so they're investing a lot of money into you and the practice and they just want to make sure that nothing happens to that. It's also important to think about this as you start to plan and just think about, you know, what your timeline looks like. Don't get to that point where you're so burnt out that you just want to be done, but now you're stuck for a couple of years because that's your only option. It's always good to give you some cushion in case you could sell to another veterinarian and then maybe you can leave the next day, but I think that's few and far between. So, you know, just give yourself some cushion there when I would always expect it on the longer side, just to make sure that you're ready for that. It's also important to note that it's a lot less common to be offered all cash deals now. So historically, it was, we want to come by your practice, here's $4 million, and then take the key and goodbye and, you know, or stay on for a year and that's it. That's really not the case anymore. You may see that sometimes, but I find it's becoming more and more rare. So now more than ever, deal structures are much more complex and typically have multiple layers, which can include all different types of structures in one. So that can include earnouts or subordinated notes, which are held back at close and paid out over time. Equity, all these things can kind of be rolled into one deal. Like I had mentioned before, buyers will often do this to protect themselves especially after all the activity in 2021. I think a lot of them got burned from overpaying for practices and then doctors were just leaving and then they were stuck holding the bag with these practices with no veterinarians. So, you know, I think this is just different things that they've employed to help protect their investments. But at the same time, a lot of these things like the earnouts and the subordinated notes. So the earnout is usually paid out throughout a period of time. So you'll get a portion of the cash up front and then the earnout will be paid out. It's usually anywhere from 12 to 18, 24 months. 
it kind of depends on who the buyer is. But usually if you grow the practice during that earnout period, they'll actually give you more money in each earnout. So it gives you some upside there. And then the subordinated note, essentially what they're doing is they're not paying you that money, but they're owing it to you. So they're going to be paying it out to you in different increments for the practice, but then you'll also be able to collect interest on that. And that's another important negotiating point because all these different structures can be negotiated. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone who understands all these different deal structures and knows, for example, like, hey, you're getting interest on this. This interest is really low. You should negotiate for a higher interest rate. Things like that that you typically wouldn't think of if you've never done a deal like this before. So just some things that kind of also play into that as far as timing goes. Yeah, that's right. I've always been intrigued if there's a standard with the time frame as to how long the seller has to stay around. And so it seems like if you have thought about selling your practice, you have to consider that once you sell, you might stay five years. So, and that's a long time. So certainly, I would say from the get-go and buying a practice, you should be saying, how long do I really want to own this practice for? Because if you want to get a good payout, then you have to stick around for a bit. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's say I say I'm going to stay three years and then I have this payout. I definitely have to stay because otherwise they can not pay me at some point if I just decided to leave and I don't get any equity on the clinic. You know, I sold all the equity. The question that I have, how do you establish a salary for yourself as the owner at that point? Because I imagine they get a salary paid through those three years that they stay around. Yeah. So that's another negotiating point. So as all the legal documents come through, you know, it starts with the letter of intent. It's a non-binding document. So everything in that document is subject to change, but it'll usually be the layout of the deal, right? So it'll kind of go through what the deal structure is going to look like. Usually it will highlight what your salary is going to be and what that's going to look like. So just like the very high levels of the deal. And then Next, you'll get an employment agreement. So this, of course, can be negotiated. Typically, it's based off of your production is usually how they give you your salary. And then sometimes they'll give you an extra stipend. You know, it depends. Usually, most groups will do like a pro-sal model. So production and salary. And then sometimes they'll give you an extra stipend as well if you're going to be like the medical director or you're going to have some type of leadership role. It's also important to note too that typically in the deal structures, they'll want you to bake in some money to give to the associates as like a sign-on bonus, as like a retention bonus. I can't really give you a number because it kind of depends on how many associates are there, but could be anywhere from $50,000 that you allocate in a pool that once the practice closes, that'll be kind of dispersed to all the associates to kind of be like, hey guys, thank you you know, so much for your work. Excited for you to still be a part of the practice. Just in this sign-on bonus world, it's kind of just something that we have to do now to make it lucrative for other people. Awesome. That's interesting. I hadn't really heard about that specifically. I've heard about retention bonuses just in general, mainly from folks who work in corporations already. But that's interesting to hear about it as part of the terms for a new acquisition for a corporation. And so you talked about some of the things, but what are some other things that a practice owner can do to help negotiate better terms when they're transitioning out of a practice? Yeah. So if they're transitioning, meaning like when they're selling their practice. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So I think just really knowing what your goals are and if you have somebody helping you who kind of knows what things you can and can't negotiate, it's also really, really important to have a good legal team. So you're going to be working with an attorney as well. And you want to make sure, you know, I, I can't stress this enough how important it is to have an attorney who specifically has experience in veterinary M&A deals. So this is just going to be the most important parts of your team because I've seen people use, you know, their cousin or their family friend or their divorce attorney or whoever, and it can go horribly, horribly wrong. So I think just the more knowledge you have behind you of what you can and can't negotiate and understand the market and how these deals are done, that's going to give you leverage for negotiating the best terms. And also just being really clear on what your goals are, very clear on how long you want to work, what that's going to look like for you, what your hours are going to look like. All these things are important, but really having somebody who understands the market and how these deals are done is going to be the most important for helping you negotiate that. Okay, awesome. So for the practice owners out there, you have to get clear on your goals and you definitely need an attorney who is familiar with mergers and acquisitions. So excellent. Specifically in the vet space too. If you're working with an advisor or a broker, they should have relationships and can recommend you to attorneys that have done tons of these deals before because there's a lot of things that are kind of different on the vet side. So, you know, maybe they've done a lot of dental deals, which can be similar in some ways, but for the most part, you'll want to go with someone who's done these vet specific deals. And there's a lot of attorneys out there because there's been so much activity. Okay, so we talked about the practice owners. It seemed like having a good bookkeeping makes it a lot smoother for the whole process of selling. But what other things can a practice owner do to make it smoother for the staff? We did talk about veterinarians and, you know, having some sort of retention bonus during that signing, which I have never heard like Meredith mentioned. And that's amazing. Makes total sense. If the owner is expected to stay there for three years, I'm hoping he's also thinking about his associates. Like, I would like my associates to also stay here for three years with that retention bonus. But what about the staff? Do they get any incentives usually? Yeah, that's a great question too. So a lot of groups have started to implement different things in for the staff too. Like sometimes they have almost kind of like a profit sharing. All groups are different, but obviously they offer really good benefits, time off, training. You know, these are all things that a corporation can offer that usually gets the staff really excited. So timing and communication is key for telling your staff. So we typically recommend you telling your staff about the sale after an LOI has been signed. Although I have had some clients who tell them before they even put the practice on the market so they know ahead of time. You always run the risk of people getting cold feet. And I think this has gotten much better because I feel like the stigma about corporate medicine has gotten much better because gone are the days where it's just been a couple really big names out there and it's, oh, they're controlling, it's we're working for corporate. You know, a lot of these corporations are much smaller and they still give you very much autonomy and it still feels like your clinic. So I feel like that stigma has gotten a lot better. But of course, you're always going to have people who freak out a little bit and maybe leave. So that's usually like the biggest worry that everybody has. But if you do choose to wait, it's important to know that everything we talk about is highly confidential and will not be shared with the staff until you're ready 
from the whole entire process of doing your evaluation with transformation group to soliciting and talking to all different buyers, all of that, you know, everyone signs at non-disclosure agreements. So everything's confidential. So no one's going to find out about anything. And I think just as far as positioning the sale, you know, positioning is so important and we can help you every step of the way. You know, I know how much stress that this causes anybody as an owner. That's one of the things like a lot of times it'll completely scare them out of selling just because they're so stressed out about telling their staff. But it's important to highlight all the benefits that a corporation can bring. And there's many ways that you can communicate this. So I've seen owners do it through their regular scheduled staff meetings. Some have actually made a video for the staff to watch and they've emailed it out. And others have actually written heartfelt letters because it was just easier for them to just write it out and wrote letters to each individual staff member. I do recommend telling the associate doctors before the staff and meet with each individual associate as they will have employment agreements coming from the corporation. So I just think it's good to just pull them aside individually and just explain to them what's going on and highlight some of the things that's going to be in it for them. And this is also just why finding the right fit is so important to us here at Transformation Group. So I think a lot of other brokers really just focus on getting you the most money. And of course, that's important, but we want to do everything we can to make sure that you make the right choice for your team, because it's very much kind of like a marriage and you want to make sure that they're going to be a good fit for everybody and your culture. We know how much you care for your team. We know how much they've dedicated to you to help build your business. But in the end, a sale is going to do so much to benefit them and the practice as a whole. As I had mentioned, the benefits, the time off, the training, the resources that they're going to have to allow them to do their jobs better and practice better medicine. All these are such great benefits. And at the same time, you still have to think about yourself and the future of your family and your practice. And if the selling is truly the best thing for you to do right now, you have to just know in your heart that's the best thing for you and your staff is going to understand and they're going to be okay. You know, these groups do take really good care of their people. Most of them do at least. So again, it's all about finding the right fit. But Those are just some things to put on your radar about how to kind of get over that hump and that stress about talking to your staff about everything. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so we've covered certainly a lot of ground in this conversation, Kayla. Is there anything else a practice owner should be considering when they're thinking about selling? Yeah. So I think when you're considering hiring a broker or advisor to help you sell your practice, Just make sure you ask them what work they do up front. So find out how in-depth they go with your valuation and what their process looks like. What are they going to help you with? How familiar are they with veterinary-specific deals? And you know what do they know, what they can and can't negotiate? So if you're thinking about you don't have to do this alone, I recommend that you don't do this alone. But as you're starting to vet people that are going to help you, Just make sure that you're doing your diligence and really diving in and asking a lot of questions about the work that they're going to be doing for you. Awesome. So I'm sure people would have questions because there's a lot of taboos about selling your practice and certainly it's good to hear what really goes on. So what's the best way for our colleagues to get in touch with you? Yeah, so you're welcome to check out my website, which is at www.transformationb as in boy, a as in apple.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Kayla Donovan. 
And feel free to email, text me or call me. I'm always available. My email is Kayla at transformationba.com. And my cell phone number is 732-642-6321. So you're welcome to contact me however you want, anytime. We'll add some of those to the show notes. All right. Excellent. And so now that brings us to our last question, Kayla, what is your best advice for our listeners? So the best advice that I can offer if you're considering selling your practice is, as I mentioned before, don't do it alone. Hire someone to help you and make sure you know exactly what they're going to be doing for you so you get exactly what you pay for because it's an expensive service and you want to make sure that they're really going to help you and they're going to do all the work for you. The underlying goal for these corporations, as I mentioned before, is to buy low and sell high. So they're going to try to get your practice for the lowest price. So make sure you hire someone who is going to be on your side and is going to be dedicated to finding you the best fit, the best value, and the best terms, and is going to do all the work for you. So it's going to be a much less stressful process for you because the whole thing is a very emotional process. It's long, it's stressful, and it can be a lot of work. So you just want to make sure that you have someone there that's going to be there for you throughout the entire thing. So that's the best advice that I could give if it's something you're starting to think about is just don't try to do it alone. Awesome. Thank you so much for your insight. This was great. Yeah. Thanks so much, Kayla. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on the podcast. This has been a really great experience. And uh, yeah, if anyone has any questions, let me know. But I can't thank you guys enough for giving me this opportunity. It's been great. If you like this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time. Take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.